0: church you want to get out your sermon outline that says prayer is the struggle We have a long passage to read this morning to understand it we're going to read Romans 15 verses 14 through 33 so it's a long passage to listen to it says the 7th Uh, sermon and this series on prayer. We have one more to go uh, next week that uh, Pastor Rich will be bringing to you. So turn in your Bibles to Romans 15 or look along in your outline. Paul is writing to the church. This is near the end of a long letter where he has spelled out what he believes and what he preaches and what the gospel is all about. And then he comes to—there's only one more chapter after this, which is mostly greetings. And uh, so he comes and he says to them, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand." This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased Now, here's the three verses we're going to look at very closely. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company." May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we have come to your word. We ask that you enable us to come with interest and attentiveness. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit open our hearts to be concerned for advancing the kingdom as we find it here in Scripture. So much so that we would be praying for this do this powerful work in each of us this morning. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Amen. When I was in the Army, which was a few years ago, we were required to do something called professional reading. What that meant was that we were supposed to read one book a month from military history. And one of the best books I'd read as a young infantry officer was entitled Company Commander by Charles MacDonald. Still published today. It's a small paperback. It's not difficult to read. I think one of the reasons I chose it was because it was a small paperback. And uh, it was first published in 1947, written by a young Army captain about his wartime experiences in Europe. He was a 21-year-old replacement captain who suddenly found himself responsible for a rifle company, some 180 men, a company that had been in combat for months, a company that had taken severe casualties, and a company that had been reduced to having just 50 men available for action. Just a few days before Charles McDonald took over as their commander, and the book is an account of the rest of the war as it was fought by the two rifle companies that McDonald commanded. He gave up command of his first company when he was wounded in action. And when he returned to service, he was given command of another company. He won the Silver Star and the Purple Heart. And the book, written while the memory of combat was still fresh in his mind, became something of a classic. A first-hand account of the life of a combat soldier written by a highly intelligent, interested, and eloquent combat soldier. Books of these types always leave an impression. Here were men who had very little in common. They came from different parts of the country. Some were college graduates. Some hadn't even finished high school. They were Jews and Gentiles. Some were religious, and others were quite profane. What's more, there was a constant turnover as casualties were replaced. But in the crucible of war, they found a brotherhood, a fellowship, if you will. And why? Because of a shared experience. Because of a unique, difficult situation. Because of participation in what was desperately important to all of them. McDonald in his book reflects from time to time on the affection he had for his men and some he knew better than others and he writes about the pride he felt in them and the concern he had for them and the hope that each one would survive the war and he says he would see them standing together and just tears would well up in his eyes these weren't people he otherwise would have been acquainted with or in fact probably would have had anything to do with. Indeed, there's enough in the story to indicate that he probably wouldn't even have liked most of them had he met them in peacetime. But as it was, just the sight of them brought tears to his eyes. And his concern led led him to pray for them many times. Now, I know nothing of Charles MacDonald's faith, but you see the point, the kind of affection, the way in which people come to be in your heart, that sense of loyalty to others and concern for them, all that comes from a shared experience and a mutual participation in great things. And the experience of war is a powerful thing to share. In fact, I, as I thought about it, I can only think of one thing that is a more powerful thing to share. And that's the gospel. And that's because the gospel is eternal. And our experiences here in life, however difficult, however great, however intense, are temporal. But the gospel is eternal. And the gospel and the advance of the kingdom of God in this world are a more powerful thing, a holy thing, and above all, an eternal thing. And a shared experience and mutual participation in the gospel of God's grace, such as Paul describes here in our text, produces the experience of the only perfect love in this world, Christ's love moving through and changing human hearts. And the Apostle Paul's shared experience of the gospel was so powerful, it enabled him to be united with people and with churches that he hadn't even visited yet. And it's one thing for me to say that I would be united with Potomac Hills. I've been here 12 years. But Paul's saying he's united with these churches, and he hasn't even visited them. He hasn't been there one time. And yet he's writing to one of those churches today here in Romans. And if we went back and read the whole book of Romans, and we went through this book all the way back in 2004 and 2005, it doesn't seem like that long ago. But it was. I actually had to go look. Um, but if you sat down and read the whole book, you would see that Paul is making a case for the gospel so that the Roman church would get behind him, so the Roman church would support him, and most of all, so that the Roman church would be constantly praying for him. He wants them to be part of the Christian struggle to advance the kingdom of God. And the most important piece of that struggle is prayer. And so that's what Paul asks for. And that's what we should be asking for, and that's what we should be praying for. And if we're going to do that, then we have to begin, uh, as always, by listening to Scripture and seeking God's help and understanding how to apply Scripture to our lives and to our church. Once again, the aim of this series on prayer is simply to work through several of Paul's prayers in such a way that we hear God speak to us today find direction to improve our praying both for God's glory and for our own good. And so the first thing we see here is an appeal for prayer, an appeal for prayer. And that's the first blank in your outline, I hope. Um, Should be there, verse 30. And in this passage, we don't find Paul telling others what he prays for, but asking others for prayer for himself and for his ministry. These are not petitions for holiness, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians and Colossians. They're not petitions for an increased grasp of the love of God, as we saw in Philippians and Ephesians 3. They're not petitions uh, for power to transform one's inner being, as we saw in Ephesians 1 and 3. This is a prayer for ministry, and in particular for Paul's ministry. Paul begins with a series of strongly emotional expressions. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. The apostle doesn't lay a, a distant recommendation on these uh, Roman believers that he hasn't met yet. But he's passionately pleading with them. He reminds them of their connection uh, that they have with him. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. This is the same language he uses in Romans 12, verse 1. And with the same intensity. Back there in 12:1, he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable uh, to God, which is your spiritual worship. The strongest element of his appeal, though, lies in what comes next. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And the logic of his appeal runs something like this. If you truly confess Jesus Christ as Lord, then I appeal to you in his name to pray for me. If you participate in the salvation that he's gained for you, if you submit to him who's taught us to pray, if you've tasted his redemption, if you long to see his kingdom extended in the world, then I urge you to pray for me and for this ministry. If you know anything of the love of the Spirit then demonstrate that love in this ministry of praying for which I am appealing. After all, if the Spirit is working in you, how can you not love? If you love me, how can you not pray for me? You must always remember that your prayers reflect your grasp of who Christ is and how well you love in his name. And this is just a frank appeal to their Christian experience. It's not the only place that Paul appeals to the experience of his readers. Uh, Consider this argument from Philippians 2. There he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord in one mind. There he's not inciting his readers to pray, but he is inciting them to come alongside of him, in the ministry. And here the the form of the argument is the same. If you've tasted the blessings of the gospel, then surely you will do this thing that I ask of you. And so in Romans 15, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you've experienced the powerful love of the Holy Spirit operating in you, then surely toward an apostle of Jesus Christ, you will gladly display that love By praying for him. And there's yet another expression that powerfully depicts the kind of prayer that Paul wants offered on his behalf. He says, I appeal to you to strive together with me in your prayers. Some versions say to join me in my struggle. These words, strive together with me, uh, actually represent one word in the Greek. A verb that's only used here in the whole New Testament. It's one of those words, uh, as we saw last week, where Paul takes three or four words and sort of crams them all together to create one new word. And yet he uses some similar forms in the New Testament. For example, he writes to the Colossians and tells them in Colossians 4 about Epaphras. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Elsewhere in Colossians, he writes, referring to his own prayer life, in Colossians 2, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those that lay and for all who have not seen me face to face. Clearly, Paul sees prayer as part of the Christian struggle. He understands real praying to include an element of struggle, discipline, work, spiritual agonizing against the dark powers of evil. And insofar as the Roman Christians pray this way for Paul, they are joining him in his apostolic struggle. Paul understands that this business of praying, of struggling in prayer, is no more than the necessary result of, of being engaged in supernatural conflict. He says we may not be soldiers in an army fighting together on a battlefield, but we are part of a supernatural conflict. We are actually on a battlefield you can't see. We are fighting against people you can't see. And our weapons are different, and one of our primary weapons is prayer. I mean, we're not out on the streets simply trying to convince people intellectually. Our aim is not to impress people with our musical taste or our fiery eloquence or our emotional power. We're out to win people to Jesus Christ. And new birth is required, a demonstration of the power of God in conversion and transformation. And Satan himself is standing against us. It's a supernatural conflict, Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle, similar word, against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But even if all this dark power is against us, none less than Jesus is for us. And our struggle is a deep one, and it's spiritual and it's supernatural. And in such a conflict, we have to learn to deploy the appropriate weapons. And chief among these is this kind of earnest, urgent, persistent prayer. And so that's what Paul is asking for. Then he moves on, having appealed to them to struggle with him and for him in prayer. He goes ahead and lists specific prayer requests. And so we see in verses 31 and 32, there's some specific prayer requests for Paul. He says that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, that's one, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that's two, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company, that's three. This is the first time in this series that we focus attention on a passage where Paul solicits prayer for himself. And so it's important to ask exactly what he's asking prayer for and how these requests are tied in to his vision of what he's called to do. And he asks for prayer here in Romans 15 for several things. First, he asks for prayer for safety for safety he asked for a prayer that i may be delivered from the unbelievers in judea now he's already explained back in verse 26 that he's on his way to judea carrying with him a substantial amount of money collected by the churches in macedonia and achaia as a gift to the believers in jerusalem to what we would call the mother church it's, it's come on desperately hard times very poor where the churches uh, in Greece are much better off. So they've taken up a collection, and they're sending it to their brothers in Jerusalem. And Paul is bringing this, and he knew he might not be accepted all that well in Judea, despite the fact he's bringing a gift for some of its people. And the reason for that is both theological and cultural. There are many conservative unconverted Jews in Jerusalem who not only thought of Paul as a turncoat, remember he was a Jew, he was on their side, persecuted the Christians, had this dramatic conversion experience on the road to Damascus, and now he's a Christian. And so all of his old friends don't like him anymore. They perceive him, in fact, to be an extremely dangerous character who's in serious danger of destroying the very foundations of God's biblical revelation in the Mosaic covenant. They think Paul is now out to destroy Judaism. And from their perspective, his indifference to circumcision is is, uh, not just an indifference, but it's tampering with God's law. His emphasis on Jesus and his death and resurrection, from their perspective, diminished the temple as the meeting place between God and sinners. And their identity and cultural heritage is tied to observance of rites and taboos. And here Paul is trying to foster a new community made up of both Jews and Gentiles, as we saw last week in Ephesians. And so from the perspective of his opponents, Paul is not only attempting the impossible, but the unthinkable, even the blasphemous. And the book of Acts is full of reports of the hatred directed against Paul by some members of the Jewish community. And after his conversion, Paul's first trip to Jerusalem found him debating Grecian Jews, Jews from Greek Greece. In Acts 9, it says, And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. After his powerful address in uh, Pisidian Antioch, we're told Acts 13... The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And as the word of the Lord spread throughout the region, then we read at the end of Acts, uh, near the end of Acts 13, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. So they move on, and in Lystra, after some initial success, we read Acts 14, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. There is more trouble stirred up by Jews in Thessalonica, and Berea, in Acts 17, in Corinth, in Acts 18, in Ephesus, in Acts 19, and in Macedonia, in Acts 20. All this occurred before Romans was written. So Paul wasn't a particularly popular guy. And he knew it. We look at Acts and say, he's out preaching the gospel and planting churches. Isn't it wonderful? He got stoned. How was your day? Oh, it's great. We preach the gospel and we're planting this church, and they threw rocks at me. And now Paul knows that he's heading back into the lion's den, so to speak. And he asks them to pray for safety. Second thing he asks them to pray for is his service. This plea for prayer reflects Paul's pastoral sensitivities to the situation in Jerusalem. Virtually all the believers in Jerusalem were Jews, and actually some of them were uh, likely to be affected by the unconverted Jews who thought Paul's conduct was despicable. Christians, after all, are often influenced by the views of unbelievers around them. That's just as true today as it was then. And Paul is a realist. He doesn't expect all the Christians in Jerusalem to understand, let alone approve of all that he's done. And there's another factor here as well. He's bringing money from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia to help poor believers in Jerusalem. And he hopes that this gift is both effective and appreciated, says in 2 Corinthians 9, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. But you know, some people are not very good at receiving things, especially from someone who they may regard as an inferior. It takes grace to receive gifts in the right spirit, every bit as much as it takes grace to give them in the right spirit. And if the Jerusalem saints come through with the right attitude, there will not only be thanks to God, but there'll be this rich spirit of unity in the church as it's scattered throughout the Roman Empire. This is one church helping another church. And that's why Paul asked for prayer for his service in Jerusalem. Now sometimes leaders in the church today will discover that their ministry is simply not acceptable to some of those they're trying to serve. And that opposition can be extraordinarily destructive. In some ways, the problem is getting worse at the moment. The baby boomers, my generation, have come to power in the church. We are now essentially the leadership of the Christian church in the West. The baby busters, those roughly 30 to 45, are right behind us, and then the 20 somethings are right behind them. And in different ways, each of these groups tends to focus on one or two issues that are of enormous significance to them. And single issue Christians in the church, not talking politics, but in the church. And whether that issue is how you school your children, or what version of the Bible you use, or your preferred style of worship, or your spiritual gift as a test for orthodoxy, or a particular model of outreach, or a certain view of theology, whatever it is that you think is most important for the church, Christians can become so fixated on their own viewpoint that they lose perspective and judge the ministry of others often by unbiblical criteria. Worse, many in my generation who are the majority of church leaders now in the past 20, 30 years attend church to find peace and happiness, not pardon and holiness. They want to be fulfilled, not discover how Christ is the fulfillment of earlier revelation. A lot of my generation prefers entertainment over worship, eloquence over truth, programs over piety. And if such people exercise a dominant voice in a church whose leaders earnestly seek to be faithful to Scripture, those leaders are in for a rough time. I have never been in a church where I haven't seen the pastor opposed by someone in the church, including this one. And I know tons of pastors. I meet with several regularly, and the constant refrain I hear from them is this. I'm under attack, and I don't know how much more I can take. I had lunch with a a pastor, and uh, we were talking. I said, the elders had asked me to do this sort of forward-looking thing uh, back at the end of the summer. Where do I see my ministry over the next several years? And so I wrote out a little thing of some areas I thought uh, God would be leading me in. And he looked at me and said, and you expect your elders to read that and say, okay, um, so how can we help you? And I said, "Mm, yeah, pretty much. And he was just dumbfounded he was like, don't ever leave because they, they're, they're not anywhere else. <laughs> Hear me carefully. I'm not saying the pastor can't be critiqued or corrected. And I consider ourselves blessed in this church in that we have a strong session that can be protective of me when needed but can also correct and critique when that's needed too. And sometimes it is. But some of the constant counsel I give to other pastors is for them to involve their sessions whatever the issue is or involve their elders or their leadership, whatever they call the leadership board in their church. I've counseled other pastors at least three four times just this year to take whatever issue is bothering them, to take that issue to their elders. And I've told them, you cannot carry this burden by yourself and if you try, it will crush you. One of the things is I'm now old enough and gray enough and been doing this long enough that other people ask me for counsel. Hopefully, you should pray for that. Hopefully, it's good counsel. I'm not screwing up some other church along with my own. But you need to pray that God will send us under shepherds who are wise and spiritual and disciplined and informed and prayerful and faithful to Scripture. But we also need to pray that their ministry will be acceptable to the saints they serve. It's an enormous tragedy when there are too few faithful leaders. It's an terrible indictment on the church when those the Lord sends are treated like dirt. We spend enormous amounts of money sending people to seminary. Forty percent don't survive the first five years in ministry. I've seen lots of different surveys. But somewhere between 1,500 and 3,000 pastors a week are leaving the ministry in the United States. Now, some leave because they got in trouble. Some leave because they did something stupid. Some leave because God called them to do something else. The vast majority, between 80 and 90%, leave because they can't take it anymore. We are killing ourselves in the church in America by running off the leadership. And the PCA is not exempt. We have people in our own presbytery, pastors who've had nervous breakdowns this last year because of how they've been treated, or they've gone into extreme depression because of that. I understand that. And the Apostle Paul understands it. And I wish I could say, these things don't happen. But they do happen. They happen a lot. And perhaps they wouldn't happen as much if we all prayed that God would make the ministry of his faithful leaders acceptable to the saints, that they would accept it, but also that it would be a better ministry, that it would be more acceptable in what they do and say. And so if we pray for them to make their ministry acceptable, both in the giving and in the receiving, the church would be a lot healthier. And this is what Paul's concerned about. And if an apostle has to deal with this and has to be concerned about, none of the rest of us should ever think we're exempt. Not from correction, after all. Paul corrected Peter, but from unloving opposition. And so Paul asked for prayer. Make my service acceptable to the saints and perhaps maybe because of the unloving opposition that he's faced, Paul asks for their fellowship. He asks for their fellowship, pray, he writes, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. That has to be understood against the background of all the verses that immediately precedes this request for prayer. The rest of those verses I read at the beginning of the sermon. Paul's not simply asking that he could get to Rome and have a vacation. He's explained, verse 20, it's always been his ambition to preach the gospel where it's unknown. And that's why he feels in verse 23, he says, there's no more place for him to work in the eastern Mediterranean. He's already preached in all those places. And his plan then in verse 24 is to stop in Rome, visit this church on his way to Spain because as far as you know, the gospel hasn't gotten to Spain yet, and he wants to go there and extend his ministry into new areas. But first, he has to make this trip to Jerusalem, deliver the money that was collected in Macedonia uh, Macedonia and Achaia, and be given to the poor believers there. And so when he asks for a prayer in connection with his trip to Jerusalem, he doesn't think of that trip with also thinking about the ministry that he uh, envisions... Uh, going on beyond Jerusalem. First, he plans on going to Rome to share in the ministry there, and then using that as a base, he wants to go to Spain and preach the gospel there. Who knows where he would have gone after that if his plans worked out. But this being refreshed in Rome is meant to convey not only his joy in ministering there and being ministered to, but also his hope that he'd pick up some support there to help him on his way to Spain. By the way, that's the whole purpose of Romans. This is the gospel. This is what we believe. This is what we preach. And we're going to take this gospel to the whole world. Will you get behind this? Maybe you didn't realize it. Romans is just a really long support raising letter. That's all it is. Like all good support letters, it lets us know that prayer is needed far more than money. And this is a big-picture view of prayer. Although it articulates immediate concerns, it doesn't simply ask God for enough grace to get us through the current mess. He keeps in mind the big picture and foresees future outreach. And it's vitally important to recognize Paul's prayer is nothing other than a concern for the gospel itself and for its extension throughout the world. E.M. Bounds wrote a wonderful series of books on prayer and I think they're all bound together now in one book, but one of his prayers said, uh, one of his words, he said, one of the constitutional enforcements of the gospel is prayer. Without prayer, the gospel can be neither preached effectively, promulgated faithfully, experienced in the heart, nor be practiced in the life. And for the very simple reason that by leaving prayer out of the catalog of religious duties, we leave God out. And his work cannot progress without him. That's what's so attractive about Paul's prayer. He doesn't want his service uh, to be accepted by the saints and to be tolerated by Jews in order that his life will be a little easier or his reputation will be enhanced in the power blocks of the church. He wants his way to be smooth so he can get on with the next phase of ministry. He cares about the gospel. He's passionately committed to his advancement, and that's what drives his prayers. Specifically, he requests prayer that he'll be rescued from those in Judea who disobey the gospel, that this ministry will be acceptable to the saints in Jerusalem, and all of this so that he may be able to go to Rome and be refreshed by the church in Rome and then sent on his way towards further preaching of the gospel and church planning in Spain. But we know how the story works out. We have the rest of the book of Acts. And of these three requests, the first one was granted, though not in the way that Paul could ever have conceived of. Was Paul delivered from unbelievers in Jerusalem? Well, no, in the sense that he was arrested, tried, and imprisoned. But yes, because he was rescued three times from lynching, Acts 21, 22, and 23. He was rescued once from flogging, Acts 22. And he was rescued once from a plot to kill him, Acts 21. So he's arrested in Jerusalem owing to the instigation of these unbelievers in Judea. But he was kept safe from them by being locked up by the Romans for two years. And I'm pretty sure when he was asking for prayer for safety, his idea wasn't, well, I'll be safe as they keep me behind bars. That's usually not where I'm thinking safety. If they put me in jail, then I'll be safe. But that's what happened. Was his prayer answered? Well, he was safe. The second one was granted. His service was accepted by the saints in Jerusalem And the third one was granted. He did get to experience fellowship with the believers in Rome. He got to Rome, but not as he wanted. After two years imprisoned in Caesarea, after a hearing before a corrupt court, he appeals to Caesar and he's shipped to Rome along the way experiencing his fourth shipwreck. I'm surprised any captain would let him on the boat. He gets to Rome three years later, and he arrives in chains. I'm sure when he says, I would love to come to Rome, this isn't what he had in mind, that after they pull me off the first sinking ship, they'll put me on another sinking ship, and I'll be dragged into Rome in chains, looking forward to it. Can't wait to be there. But he arrives in chains. This answer to prayer doesn't come quite as he imagined. Because this fellowship he asked for, this refreshment came as they visited him in prison. And however, as far as we know, he never got to Spain. When Paul requested the prayers recorded in this passage, he couldn't have imagined these results. And yet I find it reassuring to recognize that some of Paul's prayers were not answered as he would have liked because I think that's pretty much our experience too. Sometimes our prayers aren't answered the way we want and the answers are better. I have a framed prayer in my office. It's called the prayer of an unknown Confederate soldier. And it goes like this. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among men most richly blessed. There is a profound sense in which a sovereign, holy, loving, wise father whom we address in Jesus' name, is more interested in us than in our prayer requests. I don't know the end from the beginning. Only God does. But he's interested in me as his child in the same way he was interested in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And part of this business of prayer is getting to know God better. Part of it is learning his mind and learning his will. Part of it is tied up with teaching me to wait or teaching me that sometimes my requests are often askewed or that my motives are selfish. And just as God's unexpected answers to Paul's prayers were the best possible answers, precisely because they were God's answers, so also his answers to our prayers will always be for his glory and for our good, even when it's not what we want. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Heavenly Father, it's hard for us to know what to pray for. And sometimes it's hard for us to understand your answers to these prayers. Lord, help us learn to trust you that all of your answers, the easy ones and the hard ones, are given because they're what's best for us. So this morning we ask that you would build our faith. And you would build our faith by building our prayer life. Do this for us in Jesus' name. And for his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close. If if you say go.